Well, good morning, once again, and uh, hello for the first time to those of you who I didn't meet yesterday. Uh, I consider it um, an honor to speak anywhere at a church, but on Saturday mornings, when you guys have a thousand and one other things that I know you could be doing, um, uh, I'm uh, very grateful and struck by your willingness to join me for a, a morning or so. Um, to reflect on the kinds of things we've been talking about. I hope, by God's grace, our time together will be really valuable. Um, I will try to make it so. And if you guys participate and engage like you did yesterday, I'm confident it will be. Let me lead us in prayer as we begin. Merciful Father, we come to you needy and helpless, and yet, as your beloved children clothed with Christ, alive in him, and confident of your grace to us in him. And so, please, would you make this time that you've blessed us with this morning fruitful to us, that we may grow into greater Christ-likeness, greater maturity, for our own sake, for the sake of our families, our wives and our children and our siblings, and our friends, and our brothers and sisters in Christ here in the church, whether in Nacogdoches or elsewhere. Heavenly Father, we know that you have committed yourself to work through these frail, physical human beings in the world, in the unspectacular and ordinary tasks of work and life together in families and in our homes and communities gathering together in worship, and all of this stuff that seems so unimpressive is the, the sphere within which your infinite power, by which Christ was raised from the dead, is present in the world. So please would you shape us in this time that we have together and in the months and years ahead so that we are able to serve Christ more faithfully in those settings. And we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. I'd be grateful if somebody could please distribute these. Uh, I've got a... Uh, if I can just give those to you. And while, they, um, while they're going out, uh, bear with me one second. Let me grab that. Uh, I'm conscious that uh, there are one or two of you men who weren't around yesterday um, due to other commitments and so on. So let me give you a very brief recap of uh, what we talked about yesterday and also to refresh all our memories because I suspect if you're anything like me then occasionally you just, ah yes, something to jog the old grey cells. Um, I began by uh, recalling an observation that I've made as a pastor and just as a Christian in my own life that there are times when every individual seems to grow not every individual, many individual Christians seem to grow wonderfully in their faith in Christ. And yet, sometimes there are periods in my life, or long periods in some people's lives, during which they experience no growth in faithfulness at all. Often, despite being at church every week, and being devoted readers of theological literature, and even... Uh, engaging in 
lengthy and repeated ongoing pastoral counseling, why is it that some people grow towards maturity in Christ far more fruitfully than others? And uh, this question has been bugging me for well over a decade. And I started to wonder whether or not I might be missing some fundamental insight concerning how it is that God does purpose to bring about growth towards maturity in us. More recently, it's occurred to me that, yes, I was probably missing at least one major insight. The insight is that the big picture framework through which God has designed human beings to grow from childishness to maturity is childhood. What's supposed to happen if we were perfect fathers or we were perfect children is that the process of growth from infancy to 18, 19, 20 years old would get us to the point of not moral perfection, but at least mature manhood, Christ-likeness, maturity in Christ. Analogous to what you'd say of a, um, a carpenter who's completed his training. Of course he could still improve. And of course occasionally the nails go in at the wrong angle. But basically he knows what he's doing now in contrast to a, an amateur like myself who has no clue what he's doing when he steps into a workshop. And the problem is that many of us, most of us, perhaps all of us in different ways are still amateurs. We're still like the carpenter who has no clue what he's doing when he goes into the workshop. Because the structures of childhood didn't complete their work in us. And so the insight that um, I think I stumbled on, by God's grace, is that perhaps the way to get towards maturity as adults is to seek to reinstantiate in our lives as adults those structures of childhood, which, roughly speaking, look like structures and patterns of behavior which lead to habits of action and life. And those habits then create character in us. Now, obviously, there'll be some differences. Mum and dad are not around any longer to give us the structures. So if you want to deal with your addiction to pornography or your inveterate laziness or the fact that something's going on in your relationships which mean that everyone finds you irritating or that you're constantly bickering with your wife or you can't hold down a job for more than six months, if you want to deal with any of those problems or anything else besides, well, you're going to have to do the task of diagnosis. And you're going to have to do the task of working out where you want to be. And you're going to have to do the task of um, putting in place the structures to inculcate the habits to get you there. And you may need to seek pastoral counsel to get the kind of practical advice about what to do. And counseling should be seen in that way. Rather like a gym coach, you don't go to the gym coach to make you fit. You go to the gym coach to be told what you need to do in order to come to get fit. Uh, and so this, it seems to me, um, is uh, an overall structure of the way that our Christian growth ought to proceed and could proceed far more fruitfully than many of us experience it. Now, I summarized all that on the, the, the two-page handout that we worked through in both of yesterday evening's sessions. My plan today, in the first session, is to dig a little more deeply um, into the first two paragraphs, and especially the second paragraph, 
which uh, is uh, reproduced again on this second handout. So if you weren't here yesterday, don't worry, you don't need that first handout. If you would like it, I can give it to you anyway. It's quite full and deliberately so. And I didn't mention, by the way, one of the reasons why I wrote everything out in full in that handout, which I almost never do, is because I want to lay the logic bare to your scrutiny. I want you to be able to see, and if necessary, an appropriate critique what I've said, because um, I've not come across this anywhere else. I'm sure it may be somewhere else, but I don't like the thought of it being original. I suspect it's not. I imagine it's, these insights are scattered around in many resources that I would know if I were better read. Um, but I do want to expose my suggestions and proposals to your scrutiny and invite your criticism. So perhaps I thought perhaps the best way to do that was by laying it out in full. Anyway, today I'm going to, these first two paragraphs in the first session, then I've got something a little different for you in the second um, session, which is an attempt to address what I think is one of the most significant and crippling cluster of issues that keeps us immature. It has to do with our embrace of technology. We were talking about this a bit earlier. It seems to me that one of the things that really messes us up as human beings and prevents us being fruitful and faithful and mature and productive is our immature approach to technology. And we need to see that in a more historical and theological context and we'll be able to figure out what to do and how to um, be Christian in the way that we use our smartphone and so on and so forth. Right. So uh, the plan for the next, Lord willing, 35 minutes or so, then we'll have a break at quarter past. I'm going to talk through these two paragraphs. I'll read them and then briefly look at the first paragraph, and then uh, a little bit more detail on the second one. So here goes. This you have heard yesterday, if you were here yesterday. The Christian life can be viewed as a process of pursuing what Scripture calls maturity in Christ. As pastors, and I confidently speak here for Pastor Booth, as well as my colleague, Pastor Neil, and other pastors, it is our goal and privilege to help you in this pursuit. Indeed, all of us have a responsibility to help one another as we strive towards this objective. This maturity is best understood as a broad, all-embracing category of Christ-likeness, including, and then five areas, overcoming specific sins, addressing specific issues of faithfulness and fruitfulness in personal, relational, and family contexts, developing an increasing capacity to handle the demands and complexities of adult life, dealing with various matters on the borders of what are often categorized as mental health issues, such as anxiety and depression, and in general taking every opportunity for faithful, joyful, enthusiastic, sacrificial service in every aspect of life. Wouldn't that be a great epitaph? Not yet, obviously. But if that were a great, if that were an adequate description of you as a human being, yeah, he did these things. He wasn't burdened down by glaring and horrific sins. He was faithful and gracious and warm-hearted in all his relationships and he could handle the complexity of life. Um, He wasn't an anxious person or insecure person or depressed person and generally he just took every opportunity by the scruff of the neck and ran with it as hard and as fast as he could. Wouldn't that be great? Let me briefly make some comments on that first paragraph. Pursuing maturity in Christ is the the heading that I've included there. I won't go into detail. Those texts, Ephesians 4, Colossians 1, Luke 11, in different ways identify the responsibility of pastors to help their uh, congregants 
in this pursuit. I do want to spend a moment on one or two of these other texts about helping one another, just to flesh out one or two conversations we had yesterday. Galatians 6. Uh, if you haven't got a Bible, don't worry. I'll, I'll talk you through these, and you know these references, I'm sure, extremely well. Galatians 6, verse 1. If anyone is caught in a transgression, he should go and sort himself out. Well, not exactly. <laughs> you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. The transparency about which we spoke yesterday, Mr. Ketchin, had some discussion publicly about that. You know, you're caught in a sin, brother. Listen, this is not my... I'm not, I'm not criticizing you, but I do want to say, um, is, that, is that really uh, how you want to behave as a man for whom Christ died? You know, this is the kind of encouragement and exhortation we're talking about. Galatians 5, the famous passage um, uh, on walking by the Spirit um, in verses 6, 16 and following, all the stuff about the fruit of the Spirit, is immediately preceded by verses 13 and 14, um, which are an exhortation to serve one another. Um, you were called to freedom, brothers, verse 13. Um, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. The whole law is fulfilled in this command. Love your neighbor as yourself. And you wonder whether actually the fruit of the Spirit ought to be understood as your gift to the man sitting next to you. Yeah, love. Well, obviously, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Can you see? These are not just, well, you've got to work on your kindness for your own sake. Well, you do, but the man next to you, the woman you're married to, your siblings, your gift to them is the fruit of the Spirit in you. You have this responsibility to help one another in this way. Um, Exodus 23, I put in with an exclamation mark because I kind of like this text. It makes me smile. Um, Sometimes breaks the ice when people are looking a little tired and Saturday morning and Exodus 23, verses 4 and 5, is the account of if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. Even the one who hates you, you've got to go out of his way to help the fellow Israelite who gets on your nerves. Can you see this is the the Old Testament narrative and legal context in which the exhortations of Galatians and other texts are forged. Like, I don't care if you hate him. Like, his car's busted. Like, nobody else is going to... No one else is away. He needs somebody to go around and help him to start the engine. Have you got a spare battery? Well, come on. Yeah, but he gets on my nerves so bad, Pastor. Yep. Um, Romans 15.1, 1 Thessalonians 5. I won't go into those. Um, but they all emphasize the the calling we have towards one another to help one another. And if there's one thing that comes out of this um, couple of days together, maybe it will be you know, just the uh, sparks in your relationships with one another where you're just looking out for each other and uh, encouraging each other and exhorting one another a little bit more pointedly, a little more prayerfully. And then when somebody picks up on something that you've done, you come back and say, okay, so help me out then, Nathan. Um, you're, yeah, okay, you're right. Everyone else had two whiskeys, I had seven. That's a problem. So what, what structures should I put in place so that I can change the habits and reforge my character so I don't end up divorced, alcoholic, living in my car in the Walmart parking lot? Right? What, what should I do, brother? And he's like, I have no idea. We should probably go and see the pastor, shouldn't we? Okay, good. 
That'd be great. You might save an entire dynasty. Sorry, dynasty. Extended. <laughs> I'm still trying to learn the language. Um, so, um, a, a little break for some um, philosophical theology. People always enjoy philosophical theology after Kalachis on Saturday morning at quarter to nine in the morning, I've discovered. Um, I've been reading Douglas H. Knight's book, The Eschatological Economy, which is not one I actually recommend to most people. It's, it's rather complex and at least I'm finding it complex. I read it sort of a page and a half at a time in small bites and try and scratch my head over it. But um, he has some really remarkable comments to make about the church, and I wanted just to share them with you. Um, the church is an eschatological being. These are just quotations I'm going to read through and comment on them. The church is an eschatological being, the visible tip of the not yet visible company of heaven. This company is held together by God and made visible by him on earth. That's a fascinating picture of what the church is. The church is the visible protrusion of a future community poking into the present. Think of the church as an iceberg located 100,000 years into the future. And its tip protrudes into the present. That's what the church is. And what we have the responsibility to do is to be a part of that eschatological future iceberg. We are to live not as those in the present, but as those who embody what the future will be. Does that make sense? Now, he continues. Um, is a slightly off, uh, off-piste quote. I'll, I'll skip the next one. It's really a reference to Ephesians 1.10 about making the world one under the rule of Christ. But the, the third quote is really significant because it talks about the, the, the um, uh, significance of our relationships with each other. It is persons who make persons present to each other. This gets a bit dense and complex, but... Work with me, and, um, and you'll see what, he, what he's getting at in a second. Persons suffer one another in the old Puritan sense of persons put up with one another. Yeah? We endure one another. The triune persons of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit create the possibility of all other persons. That is to say, they suffer one another. They are present to one another. Indeed, they call one another into being. The Son and the Spirit proceed from the Father. And if the Father stopped calling the Son into being, he wouldn't be a Father anymore. You're, you only become a Father when you have a Son. The persons of the Trinity are mutually dependent on one another in that way. So they create the possibility of all other persons because they have acted in creation to bring into being a world that's like them. If we do not obediently, together with God, do the same thing, that is, constitute one another, much of each of us remains missing and never comes to be. In other words, just as the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit bring each other into being in eternity and cause one another to be and depend upon one another, so we depend upon one another to be who we are. And if we don't give ourselves to each other, in a way that is patterned on the triune life of God, each of us misses out. If I never speak to Pastor Booth again, part of me and part of him, so to speak hypothetically, ceases to be. He continues, We are all equally in debt, and each other is precisely what we owe each other. In the background here, if you've read any... um, uh, 
Trinitarian, 20th century Trinitarian theology is, is what had come to be known as a, uh, a relational ontology. That is to say, what a person is, is their relationships. We have a physical substance as well, but basically what makes me, me, is all the relationships I have. If I were just isolated from everybody else in a, on a desert island or in a vacuum or something, a vacuum would be bad, I wouldn't be able to breathe. But, um, but if I were isolated from everybody else, I'd shrivel up and shrink down and become a kind of no-body. Yeah? We're enriched by and shaped by our relationships with other people. And we owe that to each other. Remember? Because we're all part of this eschatological future iceberg of the church. We're all going to be perfected. And we have to live now in the present as the intrusion into the present of that future community. And I owe it to you to make you what you're going to be on the last day. I've got a contribution to make to your growth as a believer in Christ. If much of what any person can be is not, in fact, brought into place by those related to him or her, all parties are stalled. We get stuck, so to speak. It is the real task of each of us to come up with the whole of the rest of us. I read that like half sentence for about 15 minutes. What are you talking about? It's my job to help you all to become what you're supposed to be in the future. A whole that is coincident with the end that God works. God is working towards that end, that goal. Each of us owes all others this future, and it is to this end that we are determined and from which we are measured. What we owe each other is measured from what God intends that we become. What does he intend that we become? Well, mature in Christ. And therefore, we owe each other our contribution to that future. We owe each other and God this relationship and this being. So that's, a, I thought, a, a condensed and potentially thought-provoking and helpful, albeit somewhat philosophical way of saying we have an obligation to one another to work together for one another's godliness and maturity and faithfulness. And your private, personal godliness matters not just for you, but for him and them and her and all of us. You with me? So that's a, a brief exploration of that first paragraph. Let me, let me pause. Briefly, any questions about that? I don't want to get too bogged down here because there's so much else to cover, but I don't want to skip over things if I've been unclear. Yeah, Nathan. Seeks his own desire. Yeah. He who isolates himself seeks his own desire and breaks out against all sound judgment. And exactly, and, and, and it's interesting, isn't it? Solitary confinement has long been used as a punishment because it's so dehumanizing. And sometimes people foolishly isolate themselves. This is that we don't trust that somebody else might have something to contribute. Church leaders find this. I'm going to send this email out before I share it with the elders because they might make a suggestion. Yeah, well, it might be a good suggestion, you know, multitude of counsellors, etc. 
All right. Um, yeah, Jonathan. Precisely. Right, exactly. Yeah, exactly. It, it's an extension of the image of the body. Yeah. And again, like if you ever wanted a proof of the, the effect of others on your own personal life, there it is. And Calvin has this amazing section in his, his um, part on the Christian life in book three of the Institutes where he says, I'm going to butcher the quotation again, um, it's something like, all the gifts that we have been given have been given to us on this condition that we use them for the common good of all. It's like, you, you're not gifted in whatever way you... So, um, uh, you're Pastor Roy. You know, you're, you're not gifted as a teacher just so you can enjoy your books. Like, you're gifted as a teacher for everybody else's sake. <laughs> Planning to flame your gift, not so you can be a great teacher, but because they need you. And all of us have these reciprocal ob- obligations to each other. Um, and it's exactly that. Yeah, hello. Right. Right, right. Yes. Right, exactly. So we have a, that's a great way of putting it. It's almost like we have a template. So you are a father, right? period. And now here's the kind of father you ought to be. And so you have, you have to combine both the, the inescapable fact of our action in the world makes us a father, but then we've got to conform that to the, the norms of scriptural standards. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate that. Um, let me, oh, go on, Mr. Bradley. Right, right. And that it is the air we breathe. If, if we were talking about another subject, we could go into this, um, how modernism and the individualism of the self and postmodernism, and especially it's the form it takes in critical social justice ideology, is, that's a kind of perverted communitarianism where I am morally responsible for the actions of people who looked like me four generations ago. So both are twisted individualism is a biblical notion. You will stand on your own on the last day for your actions. But yet, there's a biblical 
communitarianism as well, and both have been twisted in um, small m modern thinking, and, and there's a whole bunch of stuff to explore there, because we're, we're about to go wrong in the other direction. Like we've been going wrong, we've been too individualistic for about two generations. We're about to find ourselves in, the, in a reformed community, I pray not in the CREC, I doubt in the CREC actually, but a broader reformed community is going to start going corporate in the wrong direction. Can you see? Right? Confess the sins of your forefathers, because you have the same amount of melatonin in your skin. Sorry, melanin in your no, what is it? No, melatonin. Something about you sleep. Melamine. Yeah. I shouldn't try and do biology, physicist. <laughs> but can you see what I'm saying? So there's a, there are terrible mistakes you can make in both. And I've got to stop talking about that because, firstly, it winds me up. Secondly, because that's not the subject for the day. All right. So what I want to do next 20 minutes is I'll talk a little bit faster, and you'd be pleased. Um, and we're going to get through the, the next section that's headed, what is maturity in Christ? What I want to do is to give you a, a vision, which I hope will be an exciting uh, vision that's worthy of our aspiration concerning some of the details of uh, what we sketched, actually, and have hinted at little aspects of already in the last two and a half sessions. So when we talk about maturity in Christ, what are we talking about? Well, there's the five little points in the box at the top. Uh, yesterday, I spoke a little bit about Adam's task and how, in one sense, that sets the agenda and the trajectory for the whole of the Bible. And you remember I mentioned, I won't go into this in detail, Genesis 1, 26 to 28, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Um, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and so on. Um, now, theologians have customarily distinguished in those three verses, 26 to 28, between the calling to work, number one, and the calling to marry and have children, number two. So work and marriage and family are two crucial aspects of Adam's calling to fill the earth and bring it under his dominion in the name of the living God. There's a third aspect which is highlighted later, which is the obligation to rest and worship in imitation of God on the seventh day. And these three strands encompass what Adam was supposed to do. And if he'd done all those things, if he'd worked hard, if he'd been a great husband and beautified and sanctified, oh, I wouldn't need to sanctify, beautified and glorified his wife and had worshipped faithfully and rested well, he would have come to maturity and the world would have come to maturity with him. So think, if you want a nice easy taxonomy, work, marriage and family, worship and rest. That's what we're designed for. Now, um, what you see in Scripture, of course, is a complete failure of all those things. The fall is a failure to, to rule the creation. It's a failure of marital relationships. It's a failure of proper relationship to God. And so you can view the story of Scripture as the story of God's project to bring another Adam into the picture who will fulfill the task that Adam failed at. And we know who that last Adam is, right? good. Um, but we don't just skip all the way to Jesus. We have you know, several hundred pages of Old Testament to depict for us, among other things, what that last Adam will be like. And one such character who perhaps in more detail fills out the portrait of what Adam should have been like and what Christ is like is, of course, Solomon. And I invite you, if you've got a Bible, to turn with me to 1 Kings 3. And what I'm going to highlight for you is 
Some of Saul's, sorry, Solomon's achievements or accomplishments, which uh, serve to illustrate and flesh out what it means to be a mature man. Solomon is um, the man of peace, the man under whose kingly reign, think Adam, let him rule, um, under whose kingly reign, Israel's borders reached their greatest extent thus far. Jeroboam II, it was even slightly larger, I think. But, but this is depicted in Scripture as the, the pinnacle of Israel's history, really, before the slide towards exile. So what did he do that was so good? Well, um, Proverbs 3, uh, the famous uh, dream scene at the beginning of his reign, where he realizes what quite what a task he's got and... Uh, in this dream, the Lord appears to him, and Solomon says, uh, and says to Solomon, um, what, "What would you like me to give you?" And Solomon says, "Well, you've shown great love and kindness to me, um, but I don't know what I'm doing. Um, so you have to give me a hand here. I need some wisdom in order to govern this your great people." And it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this, and he said to them, "Well, because you've asked this, and you've not li- asked for long life, or your enemies to be flattened, or lots and lots of money, I'll give you your enemies are going to be destroyed as well, and your and you can have loads of money and be wealthy because you've chosen wisely." Um, interestingly, he says, "Give your servant a discerning, a, um, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil." It's a play on um, to know good and evil in Genesis um, two. So knowing good and evil, to know is to be intimate with. Adam knew his wife. Yeah? Solomon asks to be able to discern between good and evil. It's a very, very uh, elegant way of showing that Solomon is embracing the, char- the task of handling the complexity of the world, but without jumping in with both feet and becoming one who knows evil. You don't want to know evil. You want to discern it. So he's a, a faithful wise Adam, at, at least in this sense, at this point in the narrative. I know there are some seeds, you know, marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt in 3.1, but we'll come to that in a few minutes. So then, um, of course, his wisdom is put to the test later in chapter 3, when the two uh, women and one baby come. You remember the, the story? This is like the paradigm of the demonstration of Solomon's wisdom. And what's significant about it is you search the book of Leviticus and the book of Exodus and the book of Deuteronomy in vain for a law that tells you what to do if two women come to you with one baby, both claiming that the dead one is hers and the living one is mine. You have to exercise judgment. You have to figure out what to do. You have to be able to navigate complexity. And you remember what he says. Um, Okay, bring me a sword. um, Cut the baby in two. And the the woman who who was the mother of the child said, no, 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 don't do that. Give, Give the baby to her. And Solomon immediately knows, of course, that the woman who was willing to give the child away rather than see the child die is the true mother. Because no true mother would want to see their child torn in half. They'd rather see the child adopted. Go figure. Um, 1 Kings 4. Um, His wisdom is exemplified um, uh, in many, many different settings. And in consequence... The, the people of Israel were as many as the sand by the sea, echoes of the promise to Abraham. It's through this man's wisdom that God's grace is being fulfilled. Um, a wise, mature man, remember what we're trying to do all the time is we're thinking Solomon is a picture of what we're all trying to become. So a wise, mature man is a guy under whose loving authority other people flourish. Is it the case, gentlemen, that your 
families are happy. Happiness is not something, or the Puritan in us doesn't, comes out, doesn't it? The wrong kind of Puritan. Um, uh, <laughs> Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, humor is an abomination in the pulpit. Um, and one wonders whether sometimes um, reformed Christians in their effort to um, be uh, sound have thought that joy is an abomination in Christian homes. What we want is soundness, orthodoxy, discipline. No, how about joy? Are your kids happy? Is your mum happy? Do you delight her? Do you a joy to your mum? Well, the people of Israel ate and drank and were happy. Apparently because Solomon is a wise and mature ruler. And he ruled over the whole kingdom and all the people uh, uh, brought tribute from these distant lands and served Solomon all the days of his life. Uh, later in chapter 4, you find a really fascinating description of uh, the details of Solomon's wisdom. I want to read this to you, verses 29 to 34. Um, uh, God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore, which is recapping something some earlier, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt, for he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezraite, you're supposed to be impressed by that. And Heman and Calcol and Dada, the sons of Mahol, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. And he spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005, because he understood that men need to sing. He spoke of trees, from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of birds, uh, beasts and birds and of reptiles and of fish. Now, and we can skip over that too easily. Um, let me make a comment on this. Um, this is not just, oh, he liked wandering around and counting daisies in the garden. This is, um, any of you who work in any kind of specialized professional capacity have, perhaps consciously or perhaps without realizing it, embraced a specialized vocabulary which constitutes the tools that you use to do your job. You, you speak English when you're at work, but you don't speak a kind of English that I could understand. Some of you like work in finance or you work in um, construction or um, you work in agriculture. And if, if I came and sat at your desk and watched what you write and listened to what you talked about on the phone and how you spoke with your staff and your colleagues, I wouldn't have a clue what you're talking about. And the reason is that your competence is embedded in and expressed in your ability to speak in a specialized way about the world. And you, it's probably so natural to some of you men that you don't realize you're doing it. Um, but you could easily, I could get half a dozen of you to come up here and go through your emails or your phone calls from last week and just pick a sentence at random, which is full of English words and none of us would have the faintest clue what you're talking about. Because your capacity to use words to describe the world is how you are subduing your corner of it. Now, you're, suppose you're working in finance, you're thinking it's a little bit hard to see how this is connected with fill and subdue the earth. Well, we'll think about this in the next session, actually. This is a product of specialization. Back in the day, you'd have had to make your own shoes, grow your own food, build your own house, do your own plumbing, all those sorts of things. But 
since um, uh, modern market economies and uh, industrialization and so on, we're, we're in a position where we can specialize. So you can have somebody else to make your shoes and build your house and, and do all these other things, and you can do in, uh, financial product sales. And, and you pay them to do all their jobs so that between us, we are contributing to the filling and subduing of the world, selling insurance products or putting roofs on houses or uh, building um, uh, drainage installations or uh, farming chickens. It's, it's like one tiny little corner of filling and subduing the world, but you do it so much more productively than a pastor could or a, a scientist could or an airline pilot could, that between us, when, as we specialize in these narrow areas, we together contribute to the filling and subduing of the world. And what Solomon is doing here, notice what he's, he's naming things. It's like a kind of proto-science in a sense. He is developing a series of classifications to allow him to interrogate and analyze and understand the world. And you all do that in a far more sophisticated way now, actually, in your professional capacities. And as a consequence, verse 34, the people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. And you know from the book of Proverbs that he was wise enough to write some of those things down, like the things that King Lemuel's mother taught him. Like King Lemuel comes to visit Solomon and he's like, well, that's actually quite a good point. Hold on a second. Scribe, <laughs> make a note of this. We're going to need this. You know, This is great. It's good stuff. Um, and so what I want, the reason I emphasize that is because what I want you to, to really internalize at this point is your raw competence at your job is a critical component of your Christian duty to fill and subdue the earth. So if you can't hold a job down for six months, four jobs in a row, that's a problem. And not just for your bank account. It's a problem for your Christian discipleship. Because it means probably, unless you've been extremely unfortunate, um, it means probably that there's something wrong with you in your lack of capacity to do the job. And I'm not criticizing you. Remember? Pointing out problems is not criticism. This is like, it's help with diagnosis. And we all probably know people or have been in that situation where you go from one job to the next, to the next, to the next. And you think you know why they let you go, but actually it's not. Yeah, turns out that um, yeah, you two weren't up to scratch. Now, part of your responsibility as a Christian man is to excel in whatever your vocation is. You don't go to work to evangelize. You get to work to work. Sorry to break it to you. Like, and and you're, you're listening to a guy. I used to spend hours every week on street corners and knocking on doors evangelizing. I really, really believe in evangelism. But your boss does not hire you to evangelize his staff for him. He hires you to sell insurance or to fabricate steel products or to feed chickens or to sell newspapers. To do it excellently. It's part of maturity as a man. Be the guy in your office who is going to be the last man to be let go when there's a downturn because you're just absolutely indispensable. Okay. Over the page. First Kings 5 to 9, just more briefly. So what happens here is that Solomon's 
explicit commitment to the Lord becomes evident in, in building the temple in his own house in his big long prayer and he's a man of God. And then First Kings 10, you've got the climax of the whole narrative really when all the people, uh, well the Queen of Sheba comes to visit him and she's totally blown away by all the things that she sees in his palace. Um, verse 6, the report was true that I heard in my own uh, land of your words and your wisdom, but I didn't believe it until I came and my own eyes had seen it. Behold, the half was not told me, your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually get to stand before you and hear your wisdom. It's a depiction of a kingdom which is flourishing. And it's that picture of um, mature, masculine, competent, godly, productive leadership and service and work, which it seems to me that Solomon holds out to us as uh, a picture of the greater Solomon to come and of the maturity that we are to strive for in him. Of course, he also wrote three books, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. And hands up if you've read John Frame. Um, John Frame's... Yeah, okay. Ask me about John Frame later then. Um, but those three books also contribute uh, to the wisdom that Solomon expressed and taught about. Now, much of the rest of this uh, handout, it looks somewhat daunting. It looks like we're only just over halfway through. But much of the rest of it, we've actually talked about a little bit uh, yesterday. We could talk more about it. But what I'm going to suggest we do is I'm, I'm just going to make a couple of comments about this and then we'll have a break, so we'll try and keep on some kind of schedule. If you'd like to look in more detail at this stuff um, on self-rule and, um, uh, and various other things related to that, then we can do so in the Q&A. But let me highlight a couple of things. First up, I did mention um, a quotation which uh, um, John Adams, wasn't it, that uh, you mentioned it was from, um, connected with the, the, the significance of governing ourselves um, if we want to live in a free and uh, prosperous nation. And I found the letter from John Adams to the Massachusetts militia of 11th of October, 1798. And it's, it's really stirring. And what it shows is the significance of the idea of self-rule, which we, remember we talked about this yesterday, for a national flourishing. And there are three paragraphs. In the first paragraph, he says, um, if this nation is a, if, if this people are godly people, this will be a great place to live. Second paragraph, but if this nation is an ungodly people, this will be a terrible place to live. And then the reason in the third paragraph is that there's no form of government that can possibly govern unruly people. And it's just so good. I want to read it to you just to stir you to fulfill the vision of your founding fathers. While our country remains untainted, untainted with the principles and manners which are now producing desolation in so many parts of the world, while she continues sincere and incapable of insidious and impious policy, we shall have the strongest reason to rejoice in the local destination assigned to us by providence. It would be great here if we were all godly, but should the people of America once become capable of that deep simulation towards one another and towards foreign nations, 
which assumes the language of justice and moderation while it is practicing iniquity and extravagance. What a prescient comment. And displays in the most captivating manner the charming pictures of candor, frankness, and sincerity while it is rioting in rapine and insolence. This country will be the most miserable habitation in the world. Because, third paragraph, we have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. Avarice, ambition, revenge or gallantry would break the strongest cords of our constitution as a whale goes through a net. And here's the crucial last two sentences. Our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. John Adams. In other words, we can have a nation founded on a constitution that gives tremendous freedoms, provided we're able to govern ourselves. But if we're not, if we're not bridled by religious commitment, it's finished. This will be a miserable place to live. There we are. So, So what's the path back from where we are now towards the kind of America that some of you guys have known for decades and love and I have the privilege now of joining you in. What's the path back? Self-government. It's actually not top-down. Yeah, okay. Things might be different if somebody different were in the Oval Office or in the Department of Homeland Security or whatever. Things might be different. But what's the path back? Self-government. In other words, it's a revival of commitment to Christ and of a population willing to govern themselves so that we can flourish under that extraordinary constitution. So, talked a little bit about that. Um, Let me just make um, one more comment uh, about... uh, the issue of self-rule and marriage, about just under halfway down the page. Um, What turned Solomon bad? Well, King Solomon loved many foreign women. And the problem was not that they're foreign, the problem was that they're idolatrous and that there were many of them. (laughs) I'm married to a half-Austrian Jew, okay? Marrying a foreign woman is fine. (laughs) But not many and not idolatrous. Um, And what's really intriguing is if you look through the book of Genesis you see every conceivable kind of sexual perversion in all the characters who go wrong. And then you get to one man who displays sexual self-control, and he's the hero of the narrative. Just look with this this little paragraph for me, the story of Genesis. Chapter 3, Adam and his neglect of his wife, Lamech and his boastful um, posturing towards his wives, plural. Uh, I've killed a man for wounding me, etc., Um, The sons of God and the daughters of men, whatever's going on in chapter 6, but it isn't good, and it involves daughters of men. Canaan and his prurient spying on Noah in the tent after Noah's had too much to drink. Abraham and Pharaoh, not a great idea to give your wife away. Sarah and Hagar, two wives. Well, not really a wife, but um, treated like one, but not treated like one. Um, Genesis is a story of what happens when you tinker with the institution of marriage, basically, isn't it? You can see that. The men of Sodom in chapter 18 and 19, Lot and his daughters, 
Abraham and Abimelech, again. Isaac and Abimelech, again. Giving your wife away just doesn't seem to work, does it? Um, Esau and Mahalath um, uh, is not the kind of marriage you're looking for. Uh, Isaac, Laban, Rachel, Leah, and Bilhar and Zilpah, that horrible soap opera of of, um, uh, Isaac and Laban. I was listening to it in the car on the way here yesterday and just thinking, what a mess. Shechem and Dinah, the rape of Dinah, of course. Reuben and Bilhar, his father's concubine, um, which is really significant in Genesis 49 because um, that's cited as the reason why his blessing from his father is limited, Reuben's blessing. Esau, again, makes a mess of things in chapter 36. Judah and Onan and Tamar, it's just chaos, isn't it? All the way through Genesis until you get to Genesis 37 where you find Joseph and the wife of Potiphar. And here, for the first time in the entire book, is a man who resists sexual temptation who lives a life of sexual purity. And who's the hero of the entire book? It's Joseph. Who has more space devoted to him than anybody else in the entire book? Joseph. Who's the man who saves the entire nation in Egypt? Joseph. You want to save the world? So what do you need to do? Well, when the wife of Potiphar walks in the room, you need to send her away. Or run for your life. Or do anything that keeps you pure. That's the message of the book of Genesis, correct? Self-rule, sexual self-rule is the path to conquering the world. It's astonishing, isn't it? All right, enough. Um, there's a whole bunch of stuff we can talk about here, and I'd love to talk about it with you, but I want to try and keep to some kind of schedule. So let's have a pause now. We'll have a break. Come back in how many minutes, Pastor Booth? Um, yeah, so it's a good, good long break, sort of 20... 23 minutes. Let's go and hoover up those kolaches and donuts and coffee and then, um, uh, then we'll come back and um, talk some more and um, see where the Lord leads us.